a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Wisp Sports Radio. The voice of women in sport. Welcome to episode 11 of Talking Point on Wisp Sports Radio, brought to you by Highlands Earache Drops. Earaches are one of the primary causes for doctor visits with over 30 million visits per year. After you've been diagnosed with an earache by a physician, try Highlands Homeopathic Earache Drops and Tablets. Highlands Homeopathic Ear Drops and Tablets provide natural relief to help you get back to doing what you love. Visit highlands.com backslash ear hyphen pain to find a retailer near you. Claims are based on traditional homeopathic practice, not accepted medical evidence, not FDA evaluated. Read and follow label directions. Sports Radio, we delve more deeply into the systemic barriers facing women in sport. I'm your host, Lisa Ringerfield, and Talking Point is co-produced by myself and Wisp Sports. At Wisp Sports, we believe women in sport deserve equal coverage. Last month in episode 10, we spoke with Brenda Andress, Commissioner of the Canadian Women's Hockey League and founder of the She Is campaign. She shared how the campaign came to be and what she hopes it will do for women's sport the world over. This month, we are joined by Anne Lieberman, the Director of Policy and Programs at Athlete Ally, an organization dedicated to elevating and supporting LGBTIQ athletes and shifting policy and practice to advance LGBTIQ rights. Anne is a queer intersectional feminist and lifelong martial artist. As Director of Policy and Programs at Athlete Ally, she leads the organization's state-based and national LGBTQ rights efforts and mobilizes athlete ally ambassadors, sports teams, athletic institutions, and other partners to shift sport policy and advance LGBTQ rights locally and globally. Anne has worked for a decade in advancing LGBTQI rights internationally. Prior to joining Athlete Ally, Anne led grant-making and advocacy efforts in South and Southeast Asia for American Jewish World Service. 
before AJWS, Anne was awarded a Fulbright Fellowship to conduct research on gender and sexuality in Muay Thai, Thailand's national sport. Prior to her time in Thailand, Anne worked as a research assistant for the Bronx African American History Project and was awarded a Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture Fellowship. Anne holds an MA from Columbia University in Human Rights and a BA in African and African American Studies and Women's Studies from Fordham University. Outside of the office, you can find Anne on the mat at Henzo Graso Academy, coaching Muay Thai or fighting on the amateur circuit nationally. Anne is a proud member of Jews for Racial Economic Justice, where she serves on their grassroots fundraising committee. Welcome, Anne. We're very excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. And thank you for all of the work you do to have all of these really important conversations. Great. Um, you have done a lot of work over the years, too. You have a long history of advocating for social justice and LGBTQ rights, it seems. Um, and obviously, with your work most recently, it's with uh, on policy nationally and on the state level with Athlete Ally. And I'm wondering if you could just begin by telling us a little bit about Athlete Ally and the work that you do and how listeners might get involved with some of the advocacy projects you're working on. Sure, absolutely. So as you mentioned in the intro, you know, broadly speaking, we educate and activate athletic communities to eliminate homophobia and transphobia in sports and to exercise their leadership to champion LGBTQ equality. Um, and if you visit us at athleteally.org, you'll see a number of campaigns to become involved in, petitions to sign, and we'll talk about one of those petitions later on in the show. And when we look at our work, kind of a 30,000 foot view is we have three main pillars. So the first is focus on education. So we all know that people who often need education the most are educated the least. So a lot of our work focuses on educating athletic communities at all levels. So from individual athletes to teams to sport governing bodies, so that they really understand obstacles to inclusion for LGBTQ people in sports and how they can then build inclusive communities on their teams or within their organizations. So just briefly what that looks like in practice is holding trainings with front office staff of major sports leagues. We've worked with the NBA rookies for the past four years, um, done pride nights with teams, and we're also going to be launching an online curriculum for coaches focused on LGBTQ inclusion. And then the second major piece of our work, which is also connected to the third, is sport policy. So one of the major obstacles, again, to LGBTQ inclusion in sports is there's still a patchwork of protections for LGBTQ athletes. So we work to make sure that sport policy is as inclusive as it should be, and that it's also accessible to athletes, especially queer athletes who want to play. Um, and part of the sport policy work is around applying pressure to global sport governing bodies to make sure that you know their policies are consistent and that they even exist to begin with. And a lot of this work, you know, when we talk about kind of an intersectional analysis of the sports space, you know, a lot of the work has been, you know, we view LGBTQ issues as directly linked to gender equity. So we've launched campaigns calling on World Rugby to adopt trans-inclusive policies. We've joined the Women in FIFA movement to push FIFA Congress to enact reforms for women in soccer. You know, we partnered with Shears Anon, which is a media and advocacy organization for Muslim female athletes to end the hijab ban. Um, so all of this is, is directly related to, you know, our work 
on LGBTQ inclusion. And so that's for policy work and the way we mobilize our constituents and our athletes is directly connected to our third pillar of work, which is really focused on athlete activism. So we believe so, so strongly in our organization that athlete activism should be, even though in many instances it is not, um, accepted and expected. So we have an ambassador program, yes. So we have an ambassador program that is now over 200 pro Paralympic and Olympic ambassadors. And a big part of what we do is organize and mobilize them around different LGBTQ focused social justice issues, both related to sport policy, um, as with the new new, and I'm saying new in air quotes, we'll talk about that in a moment, new IAAF regulation, but also more broadly. I love that piece about um, athletes that we should actually expect them to be activists, right? Because they do have a platform and um, they're role models for a lot of people. And so I think that they're very well positioned to address some of these social issues that are really restricting access um, to a lot of people to sport. Hmm. That's really great. Yeah. Um, so you've mentioned a couple of times in your um, discussion of Athlete Ally, some of the big issues that are happening right now. And I know that Athlete Ally has been working on the IAAF's um, recent regulation concerning women and the levels of naturally occurring testosterone in the body to the point where they're actually articulating um, a required level that women to compete as women have to fall below, which in some cases means that women athletes are gonna have to alter their body to meet that standard. And obviously Casta Semenya is a um, very famous athlete who has a higher level of naturally occurring testosterone. And she is also the world, women's world and Olympic record holder for the 800 meters. And so this new IAAF regulation um, is, uh, a, a newer regulation, because I, I believe they had an older one that was overturned by the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Um, and so now they've introduced this next one. And uh, recently, in the last couple of months, Athlete Ally released an open letter in opposition to this new regulation um, signed by a significant number of athletes um, articulating that this is a fundamentally discriminatory practice and policy. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could just begin by talking us through some of um, the key issues that have manifested here. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, this regulation is not really new. We say new in air quotes because it is a different version of a regulation that was previously overturned by the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And so an interesting um piece of background about that regulation is that, you know, in 2015, CAST ruled that the, the regulation couldn't stand because there was not enough available scientific evidence that there was any performance advantage caused by higher natural testosterone. Um, and that that performance advantage was so substantial that it warranted excluding women from competition. And I think you know, part of what this brings up is there are so many levels of complexity that go into how we think about and how we understand competitive advantage. You know, when we think about all the other way athletes have competitive advantage, access to better coaches and facilities, money to pay for nutritionists, recovery services, all of these different pieces, right? So, you know, at the highest levels of sport, physical characteristics can only get you so far. You also need serious technical skill to be able to beat top competitors from around the world. 
So there's, it's a combination of factors that create an elite athlete. So there's this one piece right around competitive advantage, but then there's this other incredibly problematic issue, which is why is it that the female category in sports is so heavily policed and has been policed since beginning in the 1930s, but really started to take um, shape in the 1960s when this humiliating practice of, of sex testing women was occurring at the highest levels of sport. Um, so this is a, a, another kind of overarching question when we think about bodily autonomy, when we think about um, the way in which women in sport either do or don't have control over their bodies and why, you know, in this particular instance with this regulation, why are only certain events being targeted, not others? Um, so there are a whole host of issues um, to really dig into here. Well, and it's so it's the 800 meters, no, sorry, 400 meters to, to a mile, mile. Uh, <laughs> up to the mile, right? So that and then... Um, so I, I'm not sure what the, the rationale is behind that, presumably because women are moving at faster speeds, therefore the competitive advantage, advantage is more severe. I don't know. So, so here's the thing that is very problematic about this regulation. So first, you know, um, many, many independent researchers have called the IAAF data out as incredibly flawed, as a methodology being flawed, um, not replicable, all of these issues. Um, but let's let's just pretend for a moment that the IAAF data is sound. The biggest discrepancies in terms of competitive advantage were found in the hammer throw and the pole vault. But are those included in the new regulation? No. And so as you mentioned, what's included is every single one of Castor Semenya's events from you know, 400 meters to the mile. And by the way, there was no data even collected on the mile. So there are all kinds of then kind of political issues that come out with this gendered issues. And also when we think about the legacy of colonialism and sport, you know, it's very intersectional. There's a reason why only women of color from global South countries are being policed. Yes, I think this is a really complex issue. And then it also, for me, taps into this um, narrative about what does it mean to be a woman and who gets to claim that label? Um, yeah, and then, who, like you said, who's policing it, right? So the presumption that if you have a higher level of naturally occurring testosterone, then there's something fundamentally unwomanly about you um, feels really troubling to me. Absolutely. And and. You know, it's this idea that somehow when women become too strong in their sport, too fast, too strong, that they somehow race themselves even out of the female category. And, you know, we've done a lot of work. So when we organized this open letter, we did it in partnership with Women's Sports Foundation. And it was really a powerful joint effort between our athlete ambassadors and theirs. And we also worked with um a medical anthropologist, Katrina Carcasis, who has spent a lot of time studying testosterone and, and actually has a new book coming out soon that's dedicated to testosterone and some of the mythology around testosterone. So it's also about how we're messaging and understanding certain quote unquote biological advantages and not taking into account other factors, as I mentioned previously.
and then um, the, I think back in history about how science has been used to maintain discriminatory and oppressive exclusionary practices, right? Um, and so it feels simply like a, um, a revamp or a regurgitation of these older narratives that essentially give one group an advantage over others, or maybe the advantage is not the word, one group power over another group. Absolutely. And and one of the conversations we also have been having quite a bit is we now have come to more of an understanding as a society, even in some more conservative spaces, that gender is on a spectrum, that gender is not binary. But the conversation we are not having as much that we need to be having is that biological sex is also on a spectrum and it has also been politicized, you know, and we're now seeing this come up when we talk about um, international athletic competition and um, athletes who are defined by medical communities as intersex who may or may not identify themselves as being intersex. So you mentioned earlier about the sex testing that had happened, right? And how uh, um, athletes, women athletes in particular, had had to quote unquote prove um, their identity and how troubling and problematic that practice is. And I'm wondering just for our listeners who don't know much about that practice, if you would be able to share a little bit more about it. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, as I mentioned previously, um, women have been forced to undergo verification testing at the highest levels of sport for a long, long time. And what the practice really started as was inspecting women's genitals to make sure that they were truly quote unquote female. And then it, it morphed into a different practice of um, testing blood, testing hormones, testing a number of different things. Um, but actually, interestingly, the IAAF was the first international sport governing body to answer this call to test athletes in the 60s and had what was called a nude parade where they required female female athletes to parade naked in front of doctors. Um, and, and, you know, though this nude parade doesn't occur, women's privacy and bodies continue to be violated. And I think there's also a question, you know, I've also been in conversation with some some very high level athletes who say, well, listen, when you are a very high level athlete, you give up your right to privacy. And of course, these athletes who have said this have been male identified athletes, you know, because men are not required to undergo gender verification testing. And so it's, it's also, there's a very paternalistic hysteria about quote unquote, protecting the integrity of women's competition. And, you know, there's another thing that I want to be very clear about, which is, you know, women's sports for me as a female, as a queer female, as a coach, as an athlete are very, very important. And so I think when some people talk about this, you know, this gender policing, the IAAF, because it's a very polarizing topic, people think, well, you know, we're just going to do away with the female category. And what we're saying is, no, this sets an incredibly dangerous precedent for all women, because this is not just about, you know, it's a slippery slope. And so that's the, you know, that's why we had such overwhelming support from athletes like Megan Rapinoe and Billie Jean King and really high level names because they understand this to be a greater conversation about bodily integrity and control over one's body. Absolutely. And that is multi-layered and intersectional, as you had stated before. And 
Um, we'll include links in the show notes to the athlete ally letter and then to the IAAF response. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about their response to your letter. I read it and I found it to be um, mildly offensive and it, it felt very defensive, um, kind of an, a knee-jerk reaction, if you will. And uh, they also make reference to youth sports in compare, you know, they make a kind of blanketed a comparison between uh, women's sports and youth sports. So I'm wondering if you could share uh, your thoughts on that. Yes, thank you so, so much for talking about this. So we actually just responded to the IAAF and we'll be publishing that response on our website on Monday. We wanted to give them an opportunity to respond privately, which I don't think that they will respond again. But when we saw that first response, we knew that they saw this they saw the athlete open letter as a serious issue and a threat because they responded almost immediately um, and in writing and then went public with the statement. And then there was additional media pickup around their response to the athlete ally and women's sports foundation letter. And so there are a number of things that are problematic about their response, as you already mentioned. You know, so the first piece is they keep hanging on to this narrative that they're not trying to prevent women from competing, but women don't have a choice if they're forced to compete in a male category, which by the way, they can't do legally or in intersex category, which to our knowledge doesn't exist and is not going to exist. And then the, se the second layer to that is they just are continuing to dig their heels in behind data that is fundamentally flawed. And so in our response to them, we, we cite you know, a number of studies that call out the integrity of the data, the methodology, um, and then the other piece as well is in thinking about the precedence this, the precedent this could set and in the previous case that was taken to Cass, you know, in Cass's ruling, Cass considered the rights of all women athletes and talked about the Olympic Charter and the IAAF Constitution, and they concluded that the regulation was discriminatory and infringed on the rights of a minority group. So we're talking about a regulation that actually, in certain contexts around the world, would not hold up in court. And then the and then the conversation about comparing women's sports to youth sports was just, you know, another way in which they they further infantilize women's women's participation in sport. And then for me also, I was actually very happy that they wanted to talk about weight class sports because as a guy I've been teaching Muay Thai, I've been coaching, I've been doing this this martial art for a decade, spent my whole life growing up doing martial arts and we are divided by weight class and never once have any of my athletes, have any athletes I know in my network, uh, been forced into a particular weight class by a sport governing body or asked to medically alter their body in order to compete in a particular weight class. So none, so none of the comparisons that they're trying to make are analogous, they're not fair and they're not accurate. So there are, you know, their response was, it felt a little bit, a lot of it actually cobbled together. You know, it felt a little bit frantic. And I think you'll see, uh, I don't know if you had a chance to see the Human Rights Watch letter that was also sent to Lord Co. Um, but if not, I can also provide you that link for um, the, the show notes because, you know, Human, human Rights Watch also um, makes a lot of similar points and also also talks about the research that they have done 
around intersex human rights and bodily autonomy, bodily integrity, and the way in which the IAF, the IAAF um, policies and practices are in direct conflict with intersex human rights. So I think, you know, now when we talk about next steps and, and what's going to happen, I don't, I mean, the IAAF has been just dug their heels in so hard that I don't necessarily see them rescinding the um, regulation, but I do think that public pressure is, can, is going to continue to build. And I 100% think that they are going to lose the battle at CAS again. Yes, it certainly seems that way. And um, yeah, to to respond so frantically and so quickly, it didn't, it didn't appear as though they put a lot of thought into their response. And I think that is ultimately going to hurt them. Um, and it's interesting, right? Because they say in, I'm looking at the letter right now, and they say in here, you know, that um, women, you know, who have testosterone levels above this seemingly arbitrary level, um, you know, they'll be eligible to compete in male and intersex competition, period. The choice is theirs, period, <laughs> right? Um, so, like, that is even just um, ridiculous to me, just even the way they framed that. But like you identified, there is, there's currently no intersex competition, right? That's like not a thing. Yes, correct. Yeah. So that's interesting, right? So when we think about um, sports is just completely predicated on this gender and sex binary, and yet they're articulating in this letter that these, these women aren't being excluded. They can choose where they participate, right? Look, we're giving them all these choices, but one of the choices doesn't even exist. It, well, actually, neither choice really exists because they can't, yeah. They can't compete in the male category because they are legally not men. <laughs> so it's really it's incredible. And yeah, the that whole line about the choices there is it's like this is not the Matrix. Like it's you know it's it just felt so yeah rushed and that's so great. This is not the Matrix. Like take the blue. What is it? The red pill yeah. or the green pill or something? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the, the other thing, too, Lisa, that that deeply upsets me is you're talking about, you know, as an athlete, as a coach, you know, you are talking about athletes who have overcome all odds to be able to participate. You know, you are talking about Castor Semenya, who is from rural Limpopo in South Africa, you know, Duti Chand, who had the previous case was from a rural part of India who didn't have access to the same kind of training facilities, you know, all those other pieces that I spoke about before around competitive advantage, and they overcame all odds to compete at the highest level of their sport, you know, and that is not only because they are, you know, physically, you know, quote unquote different or so it's, it, it just needs to be a broader conversation about equity across the board that that isn't only about testosterone and i think you know one of the reasons why i'm so so excited for katrina's book is because you know she really deconstructs a lot of the myths around testosterone and the way in which testosterone interacts you know with other hormones in the body she talks about you know really the detailed science and it's just a really I've read parts of it and I just can't wait for it to come out because I think it's really going to change how we think about competitive advantage and 
I think years from now, we're going to look back on the work that's being done now and really be absolutely horrified at you know, more people, not just Athlete Ally Women's Sports Foundation, you, the folks that are, you know, entrenched in these discussions around human rights and sports are going to look back and be horrified that they sat by and let these female athletes be treated like this. Well, and I think that that is true throughout history, right? There have been some um, extraordinarily shameful moments, particularly in U.S. history and, you know, globally that, you know, we look back on some 50, 40, 50 years later and are shocked to think that we ever got to that point. And I think that this is an evolution and <clears throat> there's that, uh, that I, I'm going to butcher this, but there's that phrase about the history follows the arc towards justice or something, which is so not exactly the phrase, but like it's what you're saying that we're gonna take a step forward in a couple of decades and look back and say how did we get to that place like how did we let that happen um and i think that obviously hindsight is 2020 but really right now the work that you're doing at athlete ally and other advocacy organizations that are really kind of pushing this issue to the forefront and saying let's let's not get to the place where we look back and be ashamed about what we did right let's draw a line in the sand right now um and a you know this competitive advantage thing is so interesting because when you were talking about that i was thinking about triathlon which is the sport that i participate in and i think about kind of a lot of the enhancements that individuals have access to based on socioeconomic status right so yes so they have a digital gear changing on their bikes, right? They have these various fancy wheels that are more aerodynamic and they have the, you know, they sit in wind tunnels for hours on end to have the, the suit that gives them the most kind of second advantage in terms of wind resistance. And, you know, Joe Schmo, random athlete doesn't have access to all of that. So, and that's a massive competitive advantage then that's not, that is not born of biology, right? Absolutely. And, and, and triathletes are actually a fantastic example of that mm. because of all the gear. Right, right. And then, so <clears throat> thinking about folks who kind of come back to this, um, they can't get past, it's not fair, right? We want sports to be fair. Um, it needs to be, women need to be competing fairly against other women, men against other men. and so. Um, you know, when we think about equ equity, I understand equity is uh, slightly different from fairness, but fairness is certainly the avenue that the IAAF is taking. And I think that that's probably where a lot of people begin and end their discussion is that it needs to be fair. And these women are creating unfair competition. Like, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I think it, it, there's such an emphasis on testosterone because we believe it to be the hormone that provides the most competitive advantage. It is the differentiation between, you know, levels of, of testosterone are the differentiation between male and female athletes. When in reality, that for at, at the elite levels, there is an absolute overlap between men and women in their testosterone levels. And, and there are men that are at a lower range, similar to women, women are at a higher range. So there's actually even the way in which we understand levels of testosterone in at the highest levels of sport, there is an overlap. And so when we think about fairness and competition and the, the science, is there really an advantage? And we don't, and we don't know that, um, but we are hyper-focused on that. 
And I, and I also think that when we think about fairness and competition, you know, it's this argument that it, it hurts. It hurts me deeply as an as a female athlete because. So, are we saying that the rights of some women are more important than others? Are we saying that so I can win a gold medal? based on fundamentally flawed science that Castor Semenya should be forced to undergo medically unnecessary intervention. How does that make sense? How is that fair? You know, so I think that I think that that's a really power. That's something that is really powerful to me when we think about fairness. And, and also that even the way we understand fairness and competitive advantage has been through frameworks that have been dictated by and developed by men. I, you know, so it's like there are so many ways in which we hold on to certain ideologies that we believe to be true, but we need to, as a sports community, as athletes, as sports fans, be willing to do the work, do the reading, have the conversations about these issues. Yeah, so that's a really key piece is if you're getting stuck on fairness, um, it's understanding that this issue is really much broader than testosterone and that hanging your hat on fairness um, through the lens of testosterone and advantage is a, a limited way to understand the issue. And there's a lot more research that you could do to really gain the depth of understanding about how much more complicated this is. Would you say? Okay. Okay, because I think that that's, you know, I hear that a lot around fairness, and I understand why folks get to that point. Um, I do. And I think that we need to challenge people to move beyond um, this fixation on testosterone that you've articulated and that, um, you know, is going to be discussed in this book, which will will include a link in the show notes related to the book, too. Um, I think that it's hard for folks, right? Because this also comes back to some of the fundamental structures that you're challenging. Um, here around gender and around sex and that neither are binaries and that there is um, no quote unquote normal way to identify your gender or present your gender, right? There are um, manifestations of gender and sex that are uh, advantaged in our system, right? That are people are policed back to, into those boxes, which is essentially what's happening here. So I think that it's kind of rocking at the foundation of our uh, many of our understanding of what is right and normal. Absolutely. You know, and, and we, when we think about the next generation of athletes, you know, the generation's years, I believe that they are called, over half of those folks don't identify with a binary gender. So what what is going to happen when that generation starts to be more active in sports. You know, we say this all the time in our work because we see it through the athlete activism that sport is on a collision course with society, that these are going to be, these are going to be conversations that, you know, we are definitely having more and more as an organization. Um, but sport governing bodies are starting to grapple with, with these issues more and more. And, and we are going to have to find a way to create a sports world and a sports community that lets everyone play, that's, that lets everyone run. And, and for us, that really is our North Star, is that everyone, regardless of gender identity, sexual orientation, sex characteristics, race, class, ability, everyone should be able to play sports. 
Well, and that is the narrative of sport, right? So exactly. when you think about how sport is marketed, it is the great uniter. It is a team builder. It is something that develops leadership skills and the capacity to work well with others. I mean, that's the narrative that's out there. But in reality, there's still a significant amount of exclusion that happens in sport, obviously, when we're talking about women. Um, and then this IAAF regulation just kind of takes that to a whole new level in terms of discrimination around women's identity biology and then let's intersect that intersects intersect that with colonialism and racism and classism right um and so there's a disconnect um it's uh, between what we say sport is and what sport actually is currently i think absolutely 100 mm -hmm. percent so obviously this is a huge conversation and we could probably talk for the next 10 hours about this. And I don't know that our listeners would, would be willing to stay with us for that long. So to wrap up, um, what can listeners do? So if we've piqued people's interest and they want to learn more, obviously we'll put a ton of information in the show notes, but how can they get involved with Athlete Ally? What are your recommendations? So the first would be just to visit us at athleteally.org sign up with us, sign the IAAF petition, because in addition to the open letter, we also have a peti petition in partnership with the Women's Sports Foundation that we're still collecting signatures on. So that is an amazing way to stay engaged. And also if there are issues, other issues that we're involved in that are of particular interest to definitely shoot me an email, you can put my email in the show notes as well, because we build this movement person by person and we have amazing folks in our network from that kind of outreach. So we want to hear from you. If you are a queer athlete and you are struggling, we want to hear from you. If you are a trans or non-binary athlete listening and you want to play, you want to run, contact us. We have folks we can connect you to. We can do some work with you. So that's what I would say. All right. That's great. Um, there's a lot of opportunities to get engaged. And I think I would just say that you know, we've come a long way, but we still have a really long way to go. And we don't want to be looking back on this moment in time 20 years from now and feeling shameful about it because um, there's something fundamentally wrong with the direction that the IAAF is going, in my humble opinion. Um, and so I think that this is the opportunity for us um, to speak up and to really um, say this isn't, we don't agree. So thank you so much, uh, Anne. We really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much. This was so wonderful. Thank you. Good. We really um, hope that um, this has provided a point of education for our listeners and that folks are willing and ready to get involved and sign that petition. It's an easy thing that you can do. Um, and we will look forward to talking a little bit more about this. And I'm excited to see how the IAAF responds to your um, letter in response to their letter. <laughs> As are we. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. Conversations from the world of women's sports. This is Wisp Sports Radio. Thanks again to Anne Lieberman for joining us today to talk about Athlete Ally and the issue of policing womanhood in sports. We will include links to everything that we talked about in today's show so you can continue to learn more about the issue and support Athlete Ally and others in this work. Also, don't forget to visit our sponsors at highlands.com forward slash ear hyphen pain. For show notes, including related links and a full transcript of the episode, visit wispsports.com. 
You can also find hundreds of additional podcasts on Wisp Sports Radio. Subscribe to us using your preferred podcast player and don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. For more conversations from the world of women's sport, including blogs, articles, and videos, visit us at wispsports.com. Post your comments, questions, and suggestions on our Facebook page, or email us at info at wispsports.com, and follow, share, and like at wispsports on social media. You can reach me, Lisa Ringerfield, directly at try to defy that's T-R-I-T-O-D-E-F-I, on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for listening and supporting women in sport everywhere. We'll be back next month with another in-depth, thought-provoking conversation. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.